0: As the continuing trillions of dollars in central bank intervention distort asset prices ever higher, investors are forced to make an uncomfortable choice. Do they ride this wave and risk being wiped out if it crashes? Or do they seek safety now, but risk being left behind as inflation eats away at their capital? Widely respected fund manager Dylan Grice is choosing to stay in the game but like many investors today, he hates how dangerous it's become to do so.
1: Bullish, you know, implies it's a kind of good. I think they're going up. I think they're going higher. And I think you know valuations are going to look even more crazy. But I don't think it's a good thing, and it's not something that I'm particularly, you know, happy about. You know, it scares me a bit actually. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Now, the majority of recent experts we've interviewed on this program have been extremely skeptical of today's record high market valuations, and most of them predict a painful market correction lies ahead in the coming months. This is why one of the more common comments I receive is, Can you bring on someone who has a bullish outlook on the markets? Well, absolutely. In fact, I'll do that right now in this video. But as they say, be careful what you wish for, as his reasons for expecting even higher prices from here aren't happy ones. Please join me in welcoming fund manager Dylan Grice to the program. Dylan is co-founder of Calderwood Capital and the author of the highly respected macro research publication, Popular Delusions, Dylan, thank you so much for joining us today, all the way from the UK. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Great. Well, look, so many questions for you, but I want to I want to start at the top. Um, before introducing any potential biases into this conversation, can you just give us a sense of your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Um, hot. <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, I think, I mean, everywhere you look, there's, um, there's kind of signs of froth, you know. Um, I think it doesn't matter which market you look at, um, just about. Um, uh, you know, I think spreads are phenomenally tight. Uh, covenants are phenomenally weak. Um, uh, lending attitudes are, are um, uh, very uh, accommodative. Um, venture valuations are very high uh private equity deals are very enormous you know etc etc um so you know we're, we're, we're clearly uh, i think we have very overheated um, financial markets and um you know these are the kind of markets that um they're kind of fun where they last and but they will you know we're, these excesses will um, will will kind of have a cost. For, you know, I'm sure about that.
0: All right. Well, let's let's continue the uh, the the hot temperature related analogies here. So um, earlier this year, you called yourself a reluctant bull, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think you, you did that. And correct me if any of this is wrong. But um, you know, back then you had said that the markets had become uh, quote unquote incredibly frothy. Um, but you felt that you needed to re- remain bullish because, quote, the central banks will overcook the markets. So uh, my question for you, given what you just said, is uh, is the meal crispy enough at this time? <laughs> or do you think that the central banks are going to continue bringing the heat for a while longer?
1: No, I actually feel that the the risk is still very much on, on, on the right tail. Um, uh, I feel that... Um, uh, you know the, the Jackson Hole um, speech that that Jerome Powell just gave. He he, he I mean he he talked about tapering, but he also made very clear that interest rates were going to kind of stay at, at zero until um, he said until we reach maximum uh, employment, full employment, and um, uh, and until inflation is sustainably um, higher than two percent. Right. So there's a period of of, of sustainable inflation greater than two percent. So. I feel that that's a kind of recipe for for disaster really um, and it feels that that's a mistake that's been made you know a, a number of times a number of times in history um, and that mistake is that when you when you you run the economy um uh really with with a with a, with a kind of an exclusive focus on on the cpi um and uh, you're kind of blind to other signs of overheating nobody you know, pilots don't fly an airplane just looking at one measure. You know, you don't drive your car just fixated on one measure. I think it's incredibly stupid to run the economy fixated on one measure. Um, and people that have done it in the past, when when, when central banks have done this in the past, they've, they've ultimately screwed it up. You know, the, the, the very first episode of, of running an economy far too hot because you were misled by the quiescence of the CPI um, was actually the 1920s it was um it was the federal reserve um and uh, that led to the um uh, the bubble in, in the late 20s which of course led to the great depression or was one of the triggering events of the great depression it wasn't quite as simple as 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 you know as a stock market crash therefore great depression but you know it set in sequence a, you know a series of mistakes really but the the biggest mistake to my mind, was allowing the thing to overheat in the first place, and the reason they allowed it to overheat in the first place was because they were just they had the blinkers on. They were looking at the CPI, and since then you've had um, at Japan in the in the eighties, right? That was exactly the exactly the same phenomenon. They didn't see the or they were they, they turned a blind eye to the overheating in real estate and and stock market because inflation was so low. So they thought, well, there's no inflation. Because the CPI is 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 actually quite um quite well behaved, so you know there's nothing to worry about. And of course, that was you know catastrophically wrong. You know, all of the Asian economies in the late '90s did exactly the same thing. Alan Greenspan did the same thing also in the late '90s with the tech bubble. Ben Bernanke did it a few years later, right, with the housing bubble and the subprime crisis. So, I think this is kind of. A well-trodden path, and when 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 Jerome Powell says, you know, I don't have anything to worry about as long as the CPI is 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 quiescent, uh, for me that just sets off alarm bells, and so I just feel that this froth is 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 just going to build and build, and we're probably going to look at we're probably looking at another bubble. So that's why it was kind of, you know, I said it was kind of, you know, an answer to the question: you know, are you you bullish of, of risk assets here? Then. You know, as I said, bullish. You know, implies it's a kind of good. I think they're going up. I think they're going higher. And I think you know, valuations are going to look even more crazy. But I don't think it's a good thing, and it's not something that I'm particularly, you know, happy about. You know, it scares me a bit actually.
0: Okay, um, very well put and, and consistent with a number of the experts that we've had on this program recently. So um, I'm, I'm going to sort of state. What I can see sort of as their consensus view, and you tell me if you, you know, agree or disagree, but they, they, they do see um, a period of sort of continued, I mean, some see a true melt-up coming, but a, but a period of continued um, you know, upward pressure on prices as this, um, all this central bank uh, you know, over-stimulus reaches its apex. Um, then to be followed by by some sort of reckoning you know some people see that as a correction um, some people just see it as um, crushing inflation that that forces the the fed to have to start raising rates you know whatever whatever that's going to be um so do you sounds like you're seeing something similar right where you're like the the, 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 the train is already on a runaway course um, it's got a ton of momentum behind it doesn't look like the uh, the engineers driving it are going to slow it down willingly. Um, but you just don't see it being able to continue sustainably on that course for all that much longer, um, and, and that when it when it does hit its its reckoning, it's it's not going to be fun for anyone. Um, is that all accurate?
1: Well, I I, I um I, I'm not sure. I agree with all of that. You know, I, I the, the problem I have with inflation, uh, you know, of the CPI variety, because I think you know the asset inflation I think is 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 pretty kind of clear. And it's pretty clear what the source of that asset inflation is the, the, the real inflation is in the bond market. That's where the, um, that's where the, the, the price distortion is. That's where prices are too high, right? Bond prices are far too high. Real yields are far too low. Uh, And that just ripples out across the entire spectrum. All assets are are, all assets are commensurately overvalued in the way that the bond um, uh, market is overvalued. So that's what causes this kind of wide, um, uh, this um, widespread asset inflation.
0: All right, and I'm sorry to interrupt there, Dylan, but is that because basically, there's another way of stating that is that debt is just becoming way too cheap, and so people are using that debt to drive up asset prices of all types and kinds.
1: Um, it's because um, debt uh, borrowing is becoming too cheap. Yes, yeah, right. So this yeah. is what this is why you get. Uh, I think this is where you, where, where the excesses come from, right? So this is why you're seeing you know you know ever ever growing PE deals. I think this is why you're seeing higher uh, private market valuations. Certainly, why you're seeing higher equity uh, valuations. Um, equities are real assets, they're discounted by a real interest rate, um, by a real discount rate. Um, and that real rate has been pushed into negative territory. Um, implicitly, I don't think they've gone out to target negative real interest rates, but implicitly, by targeting such a low nominal um, interest rate, uh, with inflation expectations you know, roughly at 2%, because inflation, CPI inflation is roughly at 2%, that just leaves real interest rates as, as the variable it has to adjust. So the effect of the Fed effectively keeping, I think we're already in a kind of yield control, a kind of quasi-yield control type environment. The effect of, of keeping um, nominal yields artificially low is that real yields get depressed. Um, and that's, that actually just the, the valuation arithmetic is that that pushes everything else up, right? So it's not just about um, the the cost of borrowing, right? Before you get to that, you're just, just the actual valuation arith- arithmetic. Is if you've got negative real yields, you're going to have much higher um, uh, equity valuations, right? You've got if you've got very low nominal rates, you're going to have much lower costs of borrowing, right? For a given credit risk premium in the um, uh, in the in, in the credit markets, and and so you're kind of you see that very very clearly uh, in terms of the side, You know, if, you, if you're a triple C company, you know you've probably got. I think triple C companies have got like a fifty percent chance of defaulting over the next ten years, right? You're borrowing at six percent. You're barely credit worthy, and you're borrowing at six percent. So of course, of course, that just leads to um, uh, excesses and a misallocation of capital, um, and uh, and so you know to, you, to your point, um, you know it's these excesses that ultimately leads to you know a kind of deflationary bust. So I I I, I kind of I'm not really I don't know about inflation CPI inflation to get to get back to your quick question. I, I really. I do understand the arguments and I, I I do find myself feeling very unnerved by some of the policies that, that I see and, and some of the, the, the kind of normalized actions that would have been kind of breathtaking 20 years ago. Um, but uh, this kind of MMT world that we're in, I, I find quite disconcerting. Um, but I, I just, I was worried about those things 10 years ago and look where we are. And um, so I don't, I don't quite know where the, the tipping point is. And so it's not clear to me that we suddenly get this, you know, massive, massive inflation. By the way, I'm not saying that that, that I'm laxed about it, and I don't think there's going to be a huge inflation problem. I'm just saying that I, I don't. Maybe there won't be, right? For for all the reasons that we've been wrong, or guys like me have been wrong for the last ten years. We'll be wrong for another ten years, you know. Um, so I'm, I just, I, I kind of, I'm quite agnostic on 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 that um, particular aspect of it.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds honestly, just sounds like humility to me. You know, there's there's a lot of people that um, have watched this market do what they didn't think it could do for much longer than they thought it could do, and so you know, in many ways, I think the uh, the sane rational thing is is to take the position you're saying, which is, hey, look, this is what I think may happen, but but we don't really know. And so, as somebody who manages capital, I want to get into this a little bit later in the interview. Yeah, Uh, I'm, I'm curious. You know what steps you're taking because you you kind of have to pick a course, but you also have to put in some insurance or defenses in case your primary thesis, you know, continues not to be exactly what reality is. Um, Before we get there, though, I I want to well two questions for you. Um, First, again asking you to put on your prognosticating goggles. Um, (laughs) We've been talking a bit about inflation. so Once, the ones
1: that don't work, but you'll ask me anyway, and I'll answer anyway. Okay, no worries. <laughs> we'll pretend we <to> do. <laughs>
0: um, but uh, so, inflation, stagflation, disinflation, deflation— um, which inflation do you think we're most likely to experience? You know, over the near to midterm from here, or, or maybe it's a progression of inflations. Um, do you have any strong opinion?
1: What's the um, what's the medium term? coming up some years. Is that like three let, years? Let, let's say the next six to nine months. Oh, six to nine months. Um, I think probably disinflation on a CPI basis.
0: Okay. Okay, and for folks watching, who don't know what disinflation is. It, it means uh, you still have uh, you, you, you still have growth. It's just your rate of growth is yeah. is diminishing.
1: The rate of excel- the, the, the rate of inflation declines but you yeah, still have it, inflation it's still
0: positive but it's it's declining yeah
1: and i think you'll get that just with base effects you know mm-hmm. you, you 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 know you will start to see that as you you know you know you kind of have as these things kind of start to unwind and I do for, for what it's worth you know I think that the trend for kind of durable goods inflation is still negative you know um and that's been the that has been the trend not you know for for, for decades. And I think there's good reasons for that. And I I think that's going to continue. So, and I hate I hate to say it. Well, I don't hate to say it, but it's an unusual position to find myself in. But I do kind of agree with, with what, you know, most of the kind of central bankers are, are saying right now on, on inflation. And, um, right, you know, that it's, that it's transitory. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the if you look at the inflation markets, they've actually been quite relaxed throughout the whole, Episode, and w- and the way you see that is not you know not by looking at you know five year inflation expectations or two year inflation expectations. But looking at the difference between ten and five, or looking at the difference between thirty and five, and what you find is that that inflation curve is massively inverted. So the inflation market is telling you, with rightly or wrongly, but the inflation market is saying, you know, hey, we're relaxed. We're kind of relaxed here you know we don't think that there's we don't think that there's anything to worry about long term we're
0: not that nervous about it yeah and by the way i'm not sure i
1: say i'm not sure on a 30-year view 30 years is a hell of a long time um so for kind of 30-year inflation break evens to be where they are is you know i i I don't think that's very attractive (laughs) you know real yields to be basically zero on 30 years i think is a very very unattractive prospect Um, but, um, but yeah, for what it's worth, I I think that the you know, the, the, the inflation markets have been, um, have, have, have not questioned the Fed's credibility. And on this particular issue, I'm not particularly, I don't think that inflation is going to blow off over the next 12 months.
0: Okay, great. Well, look, um, I, I want to talk to a, um, just a fundamental, um, reason for the existence of central banking, um which is issuing sovereign currency. And on that topic, I want to just read a tweet here that you just recently put out. Um, independence of currency issuance is as essential to democracy as independence of the judiciary. It's not that central banks should be independent. It's that they should be abolished. Currency issuance should be constitutionally denationalized. Um, can you explain your position here? And and can you also clarify what you mean by a constitution? Constitutionally denationalized currency.
1: Yeah, God. When did I write that? Yeah,
0: that (laughs) (laughs) about a month ago. Uh,
1: Yeah, that's right. No, I I do remember it. Just when you read it back to me, it it sounds like um, there's a lot in that. Um, uh, So, what I mean by that, um, I guess I I think that. how, how to summarise, the ultimate source of, um, I think, um, government power, um, one of the ultimate sources of government power is um, state power is, is the printing press, right? Uh, the, the ability to issue um, a currency. Seniorage is... is, 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 is uh, <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to understate really how significant, um, how much power that, that grants them. I mean, if you consider this mess in Afghanistan, which, by the way, people who have been talking about Afghanistan being a mess, uh, you know, at one end of the spectrum, they've been called basically, they've, they've, all, been, they've all been cranks, right? Basically. Anyone who, um, if you were at the right end of the spectrum, you know you were well. You were just unpatriotic, right? If you were American, you were unpatriotic. If you if you were at the wrong end, you went to jail, right? That's the way people have been who who um, uh, uh, raised questions about what was going on in Afghanistan have been treated. And if that's if you were American, and if you weren't American, you just obviously hated America. Right. Or you were jealous of American greatness or right? you had this very strangely kind of irrational um, uh, environment where you couldn't really have much of a conversation about it. Now, all of a sudden, it's a disaster and everyone knows it was always a disaster. And what the hell? Were we doing? Now, suppose you'd have been like people had been asked to raise people had been asked to pay a, a surcharge on their tax on their income, on their, on their income tax to fund this war in Afghanistan. Actually, not just to fund this war in Afghanistan, but to fund the war in Iraq, and to fund um, the NSA surveillance program, et cetera. Suppose that you had line items on your tax statement, and you could opt out of those ones that you didn't like. Right? How many people do you think would have actually um, uh, opted to pay tax to fund a war in Afghanistan, right. or fewer? Right. By the way, not very, I would have thought, not very many. Right? So, how much has the war in Afghanistan cost? Um, I think kind of estimates vary, but you're probably talking about a trillion dollars. How much has the Fed printed as part of its QE program? Kind of three to four trillion from memory. I don't know, you can Google and get the answer, you know, the the actual answer, three to four trillion. So, I think there's a very strong argument that the Fed funded Afghanistan. Right? And I feel that that's Argument and, and of course it would fund Afghanistan because you said the purpose of central bank was to issue fiat currency. Because the purpose of central banks, if you go back to the origins of central banking, and I was, I'm talking about the um, uh, the, uh, the the Bank of England specifically, and um, but if you look at even the creation of the Federal Reserve, the the the, the prior legislation for the Federal Reserve was a country- which was really enacted in the, uh, which centralized the banking system in America, which was really enacted during the civil war. The purpose was to fund government. That's what the purpose of central banking was, to fund government. It was nothing to do with price stability, certainly nothing to do with financial stability. It was to fund government. And so, I the reason I wrote that tweet was because I've been reading about the American Civil War and the end of the free banking era, and it kind of occurred to me that the reason, because before the Civil War, America had a uh, you know from 1837 until the 1861, 1862, um, America had completely free banking, and the reason it was crushed, and um, which it was, the legislative it was completely crushed, was because. You know, a system of free banking wouldn't wouldn't have funded the war efforts right and again and and again where you stand in the civil war and and and, and you know which is a, an incredibly controversial topic still that's not really what you know i, 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 I want to get into um but uh although we can if you if you, if you find it interesting we can we, we can do um but the, the the astonishing thing to me was that it was basically set up, to fund a war effort. And if you look at the, the First World War, um, uh, it was exactly the same thing. All central banks of all participants funded the First World War by printing money, right? And c- catastrophically, uh, the Germans who lost and then had to pay reparations with printed money. But again, it all comes back to um, the central banks being, and governments being able to coerce central banks into funding their 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 desires, which frequently are um, uh, uh, the making of war. So, you know that that was it was really just to try and isolate just how important a source of 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 of, of power um, uh, uh, politicized currency issue actually is. Um, so that's kind of what I was what I was getting at, and I think that you know the other main so the other reason why the government has huge power is because the government can legislate, right? And so the reason why we have an independent judiciary, which goes all the way back to Magna Carta, is because the government should be a part of the legal system; it shouldn't be above it. And when you get into countries like Russia or China, the government basically just weaponize the legal system against their enemies, right? So most people who believe in democracy and believe that citizens should be sovereign believe that the judiciary should be completely independent from from the executive. And all I was saying was, well, if you actually look a little bit deeper into most of the kind of catastrophic events, you know, in recent history, most of the big wars, they've basically been funded by central banks. Right. So if you really, you know, we got, we got involved in these conflicts that most people don't, didn't want to be involved with. Right. The government could do it because government could print the money. Therefore, government could fund it. So that was basically the, the thinking. Um, you know, is it such a bad idea to completely eliminate central banks as a constitutional point? So listen, we're never going down this path again, because ultimately, um, finance independent money is a check on power.
0: Well, so I think that's such a fascinating point, and we have a lot of discussions on this program um, about the the roles of the central banks, and I I think, to be honest, I think I'd say the culpability of the central banks in a lot of the ills that we're dealing with right now, and and certainly you brought up kind of the funding of the war machine, but you could also just look at, you know, anything from um, the devaluation of of people's purchasing power here, the... um, uh, rock bottom interest rates that have basically just declared war on savers, um, or people that you know need to live off a fixed income uh, in their in their old age, um, and certainly, and you know, you can make arguments one side or the other. But if you look at our policy responses to both the global financial crisis and then again to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Uh, The actions of the world's central banks, I think, have at this point pretty irrefutably led to uh, tremendous acceleration in wealth inequality, right? So there's all these different reasons why I think we can look and say, look, the current way in which the central banks operate um, isn't necessarily in the best interests of the general public. There may be more in the best interests of, of the people running the system, whether it's the institutions themselves or the people who benefit the most from these policies. Um, so, anyways, there's, 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 I think, lots of reasons to try to imagine a different model. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get to, um, you know, what you have to do on a daily basis, right? Which is you have to sort of take all these factors uh, into consideration, both what the institutions are doing, um, but also, you know, mapping all the soft, you know, elements in here in terms of the human factor and, you know. The, power dynamics and all that stuff. I mean, I, to be
1: honest, you know, most of what we've been talking about so far, none of that figures at all. I don't factor any of that stuff in to, to, to what we do in the portfolio. I just find it very interesting, right? And I kind of enjoy toying with some of these ideas and playing with some of these ideas. And, you know, but in terms of the practicalities of managing money and, um, and managing capital, I'm not really sure how practical any of, the, you know, the the previous 45 minutes.
0: (laughs) Well, well, I I think one practical point could be, and you correct me if you, if you disagree, but as you know, it sounds like given everything we just talked about, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that the central banks are going to continue to print uh, and continue their current policies for as long as they can more or less get away with it without the system, you know, breaking underneath them. And so as you look at where asset prices are going, like you said earlier, you know, in a rational world maybe they should be a lot lower but they might not be for a while given all this sort of artificial uh support that the central banking system is giving to them
1: yeah well i mean i think that um uh i mean it's, it's, yes it's, i i agree with all of that I, I would also kind of just you know to bring it back to us to the to, to valuation and, and stock markets you have um um or just all, all markets really um you know the the actual uh, the, the spread between kind of equity yields and um, real treasury yields is actually bang in line with its historic norms, right? So if you want to say, well, are asset markets overvalued? I think the answer is yes. But then if you look at the relative pricing of asset markets, you know, um, are credit markets rich at the moment? Yes, but they're at the rich end of the historical range. They, they haven't really, we, we haven't broken new ground. So you can't say, well, this is unprecedented richness and credit pricing, because it's not unprecedented. We've been here a bunch of times before, and, by the way, and it's never ended well. Okay, so yeah, I'm, not, I'm not trying to kind of make excuses for it. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's not kind of one unpre- So you could say that the market pricing of risk is, is more kind of cyclical at the moment, you know, relative to the risk free rate. Look at the price of equities or the valuation of equity markets, they are kind of in line with their historic norm. So again, you would say about well, the valuation of equity markets relative to the bond market, to the real pricing of the bond market, kind of. You know, Looks kind of vaguely rational. The real screw up is in the in, in the bond market, and that's what elevates the, the the whole thing, right? So, what do you think that, that, that is going to happen to and um, to uh, to bond yield? Uh, my guess is that they probably don't let bond yield rise too high, and as soon as you know, like the taper tantrum, you know, whenever it was thirteen. Um, if if bond yields actually do start to move too quickly, they'll 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 intervene and they'll keep them down. Um, and so if they're going to peg bond yields lower, um, if inflation expectations were to rise, um, then that pushes real yields down even more. And if the yields go down more, then equities go up more, right? So it doesn't, you know, and equities just could, like, equities have in the past traded very, very richly against bonds, right? Now they're not. There's nothing at all to say equities can't just now start to trade richer against government bonds, right? I think there's a there's lots of good reasons for equities to trade much more tight versus government bonds than they are today. Um, for example, uh, you know, a friend of mine said hey, Why, why do I need to bother with all this inflation protection nonsense when I can buy Google, right? I can buy Google on a kind of free cash yield of like, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, six odd percent growing at double digits. You know, that's my expected return Right. I don't really have to worry too much about it. Dominant um, player, dominant um, uh, uh, participant, participant still uh, uh, is likely to dominate its industry for the foreseeable future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you know if, if Buffett was, was younger, he would be all over Google, right? He wouldn't be that interested in Coke right? Why, why do I need to b- bother about inflation? Why not? And I think there's a very strong logic to that as an argument, right? In other words, equities, if you're really, really worried about inflation, just own the really good equities. And I think that's kind of what's happening. So in that kind of scenario, why can't equities price rich against treasuries? Because they're not at the moment. Right? So there's all sorts of scenarios where equities can just go so much higher than, than, than they are right now, you know? Uh, and yes, the overall valuation will be crazy. And you know, but but relative to what? You know, relative to negative real yields. Um, So if you think that the Fed are going to kind of fight tooth and nail to keep real yields roughly where they are now or even lower, it's difficult to really get too bearish about equities, you know, in my opinion. All
0: right. So I, I want to get to the specifics of kind of how you're allocating your portfolio right now, but really quick to the point you just made. So how would you, when you look at, say, an indicator like, PE ratio, you know, PE ra- historical PE ratio averages, or like the Buffett indicator. Um, you know, PEs are, I would say, at the at the very high end yeah. of the historical range. And the Buffett indicator is often in the stratosphere. I mean, it's often territory, it's never been in before. Yeah. So um, for folks that kind of look at those historical valuation indicators, um, what would you say to them in terms of saying, equities can still go a lot higher?
1: I, I I feel that, um, I, I, and I'm, what I'm about to say is, is probably considered heretical uh, in many places, but I, I feel that it's all relative, you know. I, I don't think there is such a thing as absolute return, right? You know, if you you know, the ratio, you know into the 30s you're probably looking at two and a half to three percent depending on how you calculate two and a half to three percent shell earnings yield right um you know maybe like you know add on a percent of growth maybe right and because the growth in the economy has not quite been matched by the growth in uh in eps but anyway add on a percent for growth right and be generous and say, you know okay so that's three and a half to four percent that you get your, you know, your, your yield plus, plus growth, right? That's your real yield. That's your real expected return, okay? That's it. Now, is that good? Are you happy with that or not? Is, is that good return or is that bad and I'm, I'm, I, I, would, I would answer the question for you. If I am to give a serious answer, is a three or 4% real yield attractive? You say, well, it depends what you can get elsewhere right? It depends what you can get. Exactly. If, I say, if I say, well, if I, I can actually give you, you know, there's a, there's a distressed seller of inflation-protected securities o- o- over there, and f- effectively selling for 10% yield, you know, would you prefer that? Of course you would, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of nonsensical, really, to talk about, to me, it's nonsensical to talk about the shallow PE ratio without also talking about real yields. It doesn't make any sense to me. Right, because you have to. If you're not, if you're going to say, "Well, you know, four percent—that's crazy," which it is, it's crap. It's a terrible, it's a terrible risk-adjusted return, in my view. But where else are you going to go? All right. So that's I, you know, to to, to people who kind of say, "Well, equities can't go higher because PEs are already low." Look at where real yields are, right? And and, and tell me why um, um, real yields are, are 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 irrelevant to where the equity market is. Tell me why. Yeah. Well, I think and and.
0: In- might want to tear this to shreds, but I I think, you know, most people um, are choosing equities right now (laughs) because they feel like they've got a bayonet at their back, right? Where they just, they can't get good return anywhere else, right? And so they're just getting shoved up their risk curve, right? They're not happy about it. Um, But in many cases, they, they, you know, either fund managers like you feel like they have to generate some return for their clients or retirees feel like they just got to have something to eat, right? So they got to, they 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 go up the risk curve but it's not something that they necessarily feel is sustainable or or good
1: yeah and i think this is why um um what central banks doing is 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 so sad really because you're you're kind of forcing uh people into you're you're forcing people to take risk um and um you know i i, I kind of feel that most people who are buying equities are buying equities because equities have done quite well recently. You know, the, the nuance of the valuation kind of is not really a factor in, in, in most people's decision. They've gone up, so I'm buying them. So they're good, they're great. If it goes up, that's, that's, that's the logic. And, you know, the more the, more the Fed does what it's doing um, and distorting these kind of prices, I think the more that type of attitude wins. Right. And therefore, the more that type of attitude dominates. And that's what you're seeing. And so you suck in um, these kind of unsuspecting um, uh, investors in a bubble. All right. And they're the ones that always get hurt. All right. So I find it kind of very uh, ironic that the people who are talking about the, 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 the absolute steadfast need for cryptocurrency regulation, because we have to protect America. We have to protect Americans, for Christ's sake. Right, these are the same people who have blown a bubble in, the, in every single um, uh, uh, asset class that you can name. Um, it's
0: very ironic. Well, all I can say is hallelujah, brother. Uh, totally on the same song sheet as you. There. All right. Well, look in, in in you know landing the plane here. I do want to make it as practical practical as possible for people. So, uh, two main last questions for you. The first one being so. Given all the challenges and, and the smoke and everything that we're talking about here, uh, given how hot the, the central banks are cranking up the heat in the oven, um, how are you allocating capital right now in this environment? What, what does look good or at least good enough to you right now? We hope you've been enjoying this animated discussion with fund manager Dylan Grice. The interview continues over in part two, where Dylan explains his firm's highly unconventional investing strategy, which seeks to insulate itself from many of the risks that he and I discussed in this interview. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. It only takes you a second and it really does help us out as the more subscribers that this channel has, the more big name experts we can attract onto this program in the future. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks that Dylan highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with Dylan Grice.